In today's show, I'm joined by South Africa's four biggest, brightest publishing houses, and each of them are going to join us for their own segment to tell us about the books they're bringing out right now. So I hope you've got a pen and paper handy so you can write down any of these titles that grab your fancy. There are some incredible reads just waiting to leap onto your shelves. And each of these publishers' segments is bookended by some fantastic tunes. All the music in today's show is carefully and thoughtfully selected by Rick Everett and compiled by Dave Wood. Every single track is performed by South African artists to help us celebrate the great work all our South African publishing houses are doing. You're tuned into Book Choice, Publisher's Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick. First up on the show, we're joined by one of South Africa's biggest publishers, Pan McMillan. The Pan McMillan team spend their days producing shelves of phenomenal South African fiction and non-fiction titles, as well as distributing some really big-name international authors, everything from household names to exciting debuts. So from us, a big welcome to the show, to the Pan McMillan team, which is headed up by wonderful Veronica Napier, who is the senior publicist at Pan McMillan. Hello again from myself, Veronica, and Pan Macmillan Publishers. Our lineup today includes news of a very exciting local release later in the year. Ron Irvin talking about his new novel, My Side of the Ocean. Tiana talking about a very beautiful and unusual debut, Theory of Not Quite Everything. And finally, a great review of the new Jane Harper book, Exiles. Let me tell you about our big local book of the year. I feel like there should be a drum roll somewhere here, but it's Russi, Russi Erasmus, the memoir of Russi, releasing in South Africa and the rest of the world in August. It's written by the rugby fundi and radio personality, David O'Sullivan. Russi, as you know, has been called many things, a genius, reckless, but he has always done things differently. With his trademark candor, He will reflect on his career as a player, a coach, his controversies, the failures, and his resounding success. Once again, let me tell you, it's been published in both English and Afrikaans and will be in stores in August. We're very lucky to have with us in studio Ron Irwin, who will be talking about his new book, My Side of the Ocean. His previous book was... Flatwater Tuesday, which sold gazillions in the USA. As well as a best-selling author, Ron is a senior lecturer in the Center for Film and Media at UCT. Over to you, Ron. Thanks so much, and it's wonderful to be here, and uh, I'm really appreciating the launch that this uh, novel's had. And I wanted to speak today a little bit about what it's about, and also the themes that I, I thought were the most interesting part of writing My Side of the Ocean that just came out this month. And uh, as you guys can probably tell, listening to this, I'm an American, and the book is about two wealthy Americans who come down to Cape Town, like many wealthy Americans do, and they get a house on the beach in Bakoven, and the husband is a banker, and the wife is an artist, and the husband's older than the wife. The wife has a traumatic experience on the water right in front of her house. And that leads her into an interesting situation where she starts an affair with a younger man. And as I've been having people come back to me about the book, who've been reading it, they've been saying it's quite interesting to think about somebody affair from a woman's point of view with a man who is younger because they had shared trauma. They had a shared experience that they both have to get over. 
And uh, it's been an interesting journey for me because it's also about that same woman trying to find her way in Cape Town and moving from just being somebody living on a beach to somebody living as a Cape Townian, to somebody really experiencing the culture while her husband's away. Uh, the cats might play, the mice might play, whatever the mice would play, but she she's away. And she falls in love with this man. It's a very, very passionate relationship, but it's also a relationship for her to get by a very, very difficult time in her life. And part of it is that she's realizing that Cape Town is the place where she has found her most authentic self as an artist. Her way of expressing herself most authentically in a way that she hoped to when she was living in New York City as a struggling artist before her wealthy New Yorker husband met her. And she comes here and it's, I don't want to call it a book about reinvention. I want to call it a book about invention, a book about somebody saying, I'm going to literally embrace this place, Cape Town, with all its faults, with all its problems, with its water issues, with its electric issues. The beauty here, the life that you can lead here is unique. And I think the story is not just a, a love story between two people, but in many ways it's a love story to Cape Town. It's a love story to what you can do down here when you are in a really beautiful place, not just the beaches, not just the ocean, but also the mm, the more gnarly bits, the parts of the town that maybe the tourists don't get to see. The uh, places down near Salt River, for instance, or the places of the observatory that don't attract so many well-heeled tourists, and how that can be so incredibly inspirational. And it's a personal book for me in that way, because as an American, I came down here and I was attracted to the wine. I was attracted to the beaches. I was attracted to the kind of more uh, touristy lifestyle. But as time went by, I became more attracted to the life you can lead down here where you really get to know the people. You really get to know the parts of the real Cape Town that Cape Townians themselves know so well. I also felt that it was a great place for me to invent myself, to really embrace the life that I wanted to live as a writer and as a teacher, which UCT helped make happen for me. Um, ultimately, it is also a story about realizing your mortality through trauma, through going through an experience that most people would be finding extremely negative, extremely difficult, and then actually saying, you know what, out of this, I'm going to find the person I meant to be. And once that happens, the question then becomes, what do I do about issues of right and wrong? What do I do about this affair that I've started? What do I do about ideas around staying in Cape Town or maybe leaving? And that leads to the final decision that she has to make, which is, I'm an American. I come from New York. I know New York. I know the well-heeled versions of New York. I know Martha's Vineyard. I know Nantucket. I've been to Bermuda. I've been on the yachts. But Cape Town draws me. Cape Town with all its problems. And do I get back on the airplane and leave this place and leave this person and go back to that life? Or do I say, hey, you know what I'm going to do? There's another option here. And that's a life-changing problem. That's a life-changing option that she has to look at. 
It was great to write a novel from the point of view of a woman. It was great to write a novel that allowed Capetonians to see their city from the point of view of an American. I'm really glad I've done it, and I'm hoping you will enjoy this novel, My Side of the Ocean. I'll hand over to uh, Tiana Klein to talk more about the debut novel by South African-born Cara Nodder. So, as Veronica said, my name's Tiana, and the book I'm going to be talking about is called The Theory of Not Quite Everything. So it's a new book by Cara Nada, and there's just so much in the book. So I'm, the truth is I'm not really sure where to begin, but if you've read Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Gamus or Olive E. Blake's Alone with You in the Ether, it kind of seems to me like math is becoming a subgenre all on its own. But back to the book, the theory of not quite everything is essentially the story of two siblings. So there's Art Brotherton, He's a genius, kind of like Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory. And his goal in life is to solve a very important math equation called P versus NP. And you're going to hear a lot about this throughout the whole book. Then there's Mimi, also known as Naomi, who is Art's younger sister. But sometimes she really feels more like his babysitter because her entire life revolves around looking after him. And the reason for this is that when they were younger, their parents died in a horrible car accident, and now they only have each other. But there's also Ray, who is Mimi's best friend from childhood. So in the beginning of the book, Mimi decides that she wants to find someone and fall in love, and Art believes that this is something he can solve with an equation. And he wants to use an algorithm called the secretary problem. And how it works is that when Mimi gets to the 37% mark of men that she's dating, she's going to find the one. It sounds doable to Art and he sets up a program for her, but then Mimi meets Frank and Art obviously doesn't like him. So the theory of not quite everything is really, it's about love and math and family and everything in between that. But there are so many interesting bits and twists. So as Veronica said, Cara Nada, the book's author, she actually grew up in Johannesburg. So the story has a lot of familiar details. When she describes Joburg, you can tell that she like really knows the city. She talks about the jacaranda trees, the weather. And when she moves over to talking about London, it's definitely not a grass is greener situation. When Mimi and Art's parents moved to the UK when they were little, their dad, who was also a maths professor, Walter Brotherton, he was a pretty famous academic. But when he went overseas, he felt his world completely shrink. And that whole part of the story is very sad, especially when they describe him as like a flashlight with the batteries removed. There's another part in the book which I really liked, which is learning about Foley. So Mimi's best friend, Ray, has a business called Sisters in Sound, and she hires Mimi as an assistant Foley artist. So Foley is when an artist recreates everyday sounds which get added into post-movie production. So it's things like a person will sit in a studio and they'll slap leather gloves together to mimic the sound of birds in flight, or they'll take two coconut shells and they'll knock them on a table and that will mean to be a horse's clapping. And I never knew anything about Foley before reading this book and now I'm completely into it. Yeah, so for me, The Theory of Not Quite Everything is a book with so much depth. It's about love, family, relationships, finding meaning and maths. Maths is everything and it's a massive part of this book. And I think it's a book that people really need to get and finish because I did not see the ending coming and it's still something I think about all the time. Uh, hi, I'm Eileen from Pan Macmillan and today I'm going to be talking about Exiles by Jane Harper. This is the fifth Australian mystery novel by Jane Harper 
And it features her detective, Erin Falk, who was also in The Dry and Force of Nature. I'm a huge fan of Jane Harper's books, and the friends I've recommended them to have also loved them. I've read all five of her novels, and I must say that Exiles is just as good as the other four. Because she was once a reporter, Harper is great at dropping you right into the middle of the mystery. Exiles opens in the beautiful wine country of South Australia, the baby being discovered, safe but abandoned in her pram at a food and wine festival. Her mother has disappeared. A year later, her friends and loved ones gather for a christening, and federal investigator Erin Falk is visiting to join the celebration. The ripples of the tragedy are still affecting the community, and the absence of the woman who disappeared casts a long shadow. Falk begins to suspect this tight-knit group may be more fractured than it seems. Between his closest friend, a missing mother, and a woman that Falk is drawn to, dark questions linger as long-ago truths begin to emerge. Exos has a lot of ingredients that I think make up great detective fiction. A small town rife with gossip and resentments. Believable characters who are likable but flawed. A little bit of romance the complicated relationships of families, unexplained deaths, and confusing coincidences. The hero of the story, Detective Aaron Falk, is on holiday, but he gets drawn into investigating the crime. Like many great fictional detectives, Falk has a complicated past, but in this book, he's also grappling with what his future will look like. Although this is a continuation of his story, the book is completely readable as a standalone novel. I'm sure if you do read it, though, you'll want to pick up all of Jane Harper's backlist. As with all of her novels, Exiles has a strong sense of place, and the beautiful valleys and vineyards that she describes are very vivid and contrast with the looming sense of menace as the mystery begins to unravel. The landscape is also part of what drives an excellent plot that's full of sneaky red herrings and surprising twists. Because of all this, Exiles by Jane Harper is a gripping and escapist read, and most importantly, it achieves one of the best things that thrillers can offer. It has a brilliant and satisfying ending that you won't expect. To find out more about all of Pan Macmillan's titles, you can visit panmacmillan.co.za or you can follow them online on all their social media. Of course, if you missed any of the titles and authors Veronica mentioned, this show is also available as a downloadable podcast on fmr.co.za or on our app.
It's Your Love, sung by two wonderful voices, Aviva Pelham and Manuel Escoscio. It was composed by Jerome Kane and lyrics provided by Oscar Hermanstein, and it was written for the musical Showboat. Thank you, Mzu Maketa, our music guru. And welcome back, listener. You're tuned into Book Choice. This is Publisher's Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick. So, who do we have next? Only another of South Africa's biggest publishing houses, Jonathan Ball Publishers. Jonathan Ball know a thing or two about bringing you great reads. After all, they've been doing this in this country since 1976. They don't just distribute all sorts of great international titles locally, but they also produce a host of fantastic local non-fiction titles every month. You'll recognize a bunch of these. So, a big FMR hello to all the members of the vibrant Jonathan Ball publishing team. We're so excited to hear about some of the many titles you've got for us to read this coming month. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Paige. It's Jean-Marie Corf here. I'm the publicity manager at Jonathan Ball Publishers. And today we will be bringing you some amazing insights from our local publishing desk. Our publishers will be taking you through some of the exciting local books that we are publishing in the next few months. Um, and to kick us off today, we have Annie Olifir, our publishing director. Over to you, Annie. Thank you, Jean-Marie, and thank you to Fine Music Radio for hosting us. As listeners might know, Jonathan Ball Publishers has built a reputation for publishing important works of history, as well as politics and current affairs. We're starting our publishing year with two historical works, one of which is a three-volume work by renowned historian Charles van Onselen, and it's called Three Wise Monkeys. Now, to summarize, three volumes of over 250,000 words in total is nearly impossible, but in brief, uh, Charles investigates South Africa's role as a regional power in relation to Mozambique, and his findings are quite shocking. What I didn't realize until I'd read this work is that even though Mozambique was a colony of Portugal, the country was basically colonized a second time by South Africa. The Rand Lords used Mozambique as a source of cheap labor, uh, and the South African government actively tried to keep the colonial administration as weak as possible. So this book really made me think again about my identity as a South African. In the second and third volume, Charles looks at how power relations between the two countries also played out in the tourist trade, in the battle for the airwaves between the popular Alem Radio and the SABC, and also in the South African government's efforts to suppress the Lorenzo Marx lottery. The three volumes will be sold as a box set, and we have printed only 500 copies. So it is a true collector's item. The recommended retail price is 1,500 rand, so start saving, and the box set will be on shelves from 17 March. Looking forward, another book that I'm very excited about is the biography of gold and diamond magnate Harry Oppenheimer that will be published in mid-April. This is the first biography of HFO, as he was known, and it is written by Michael Cardo, who is a DA member of parliament when he's not writing books. In this meticulously researched and superbly written biography, Michael brings to life the places, the people, and the events that shaped Oppenheimer's life and his career at Anglo-American and Beers. In the book, Michael describes Oppenheimer as an imaginative industrialist and as someone who combined a passion for commerce with a streak of creative genius. 
Uh, Michael had unrestricted access to Oppenheimer's private papers, and he also did extensive interviews with uh, his relatives and close associates. A personal highlight for me when working on this book uh, was meeting Michael at the Brentist Library in Johannesburg to assist him with a selection of photos for the book. And the book really is filled with a number of images from the family archive, and there's also um, a color section. The Brentist Library is on the Oppenheimer Estate, as you might know, and it houses the private collection of the family and contains precious Africana and other historical materials. So it was just such an honor to actually be there. Uh, I paged through the family albums with Michael and most interestingly, also the scrapbook albums uh, that Harry's wife, Bridget, had made over the years. The scrapbooks uh, contain everything from newspaper clippings about her husband or the family um, invitations to events to candid family photos. Uh, Bridget actually religiously kept these informal records. It was quite special to see. Michael has been invited to the Friendship Literary Festival, um, so listeners can hear him speak there. Over to Joel. Thanks, Annie. Okay, the first book from my desk is also a book in the historical genre. It's called The Man Who Shook Mountains, and it's by Leslie Morford King, who worked for a long time as a um, celebrity journalist or, in, or entertainment journalist for Sunday Times and for City Press. And this, the genesis of this book is quite interesting because it was actually based on his master's thesis that he did at Bits University in the journal department um, about the life of his grandfather. He was quite a famous evangelist in the Northwest province in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Anyway, and then Leslie and, and I talked about how to turn it into, into a book, which of course would involve adding a lot of material. Um, so Leslie approached it like a journalist, actually. He went off and interviewed all the old-timers who's still around. His grandfather died a few years ago and pieced together this amazing story of this remarkable man who, um, he was a Dutch Reformed Church, and they called him evangelist in those days because it was the black arm of the Dutch Reformed Church. And he built this thriving community in, in Lichtenberg in the, in the uh, northwest. Anyway, through this, then Leslie discovered quite amazing things about the history of the black arm of the Dutch Reformed Church, that there's a French connection and goes back to all the way to King Mushwishwe of Lesotho which Leslie then followed, going all the way to the mountains of the city to find out more information, and he travelled to Paris even to get more information. And it's really the big story of him exploring his history, but also claiming his heritage. It's an immensely interesting book and beautifully told, actually. That book is coming in March, late March, and then shortly after that, in very early April, is a, a book very excited about by Justice Malala about the week after Chris Harney's death. The book is called The Plot to Save South Africa. Um, Justice, as some people will know, is a very, very uh, well-known journalist. He's been writing columns for years and he's been on television, and he's a long-time Jonathan Ball author. Uh, we published his, we have now begun his descent quite a few years ago. So it's been a while since he's written a book. And you can tell why this book has been meticulously researched. Huge amounts of um, new information. He's interviewed everybody that was involved in that very, very dramatic week after um, Harney's death, um, which I'm sure people will remember was Easter week in 1993. So that's 30 years ago in the week that this book comes out in the first week of April. So he went to all the people who worked with Mandela, around Mandela and around F.W. de Klerk, because these were the key people trying to bring South Africa back from the brink of civil war in that terrible week. And what's 
probably most interesting from a publisher's perspective is that he took an American approach, Justice lives in New York these days, of building this narrative journalism in, in a cinematic style. So each scene is painted meticulously like it's a, like you're in a movie scene. And it sort of shifts, you know, from it's 9 a.m. at this time of day and then it goes to 10 a.m. in another part of the country. So it's, it's quite a, a different style for South Africa. We don't tend to do this very often, but, I mean, it works beautifully. It's very, very interesting. Also, a book that we just brought out, but it's worth mentioning because it's also to do with Chris Harney. We published many years ago, about 10 years ago, the seminal biography of, of Harney by Janet Smith and Beauregard Trump called Harney, A Life Too Short. And we just reissued that. And it's, it's already on the shelves. Of course, Harney is a huge historical figure. People always sort of revisit his death every year and think, you know, what would South Africa be like today if he had not died? He was a man of peace and he was a great intellectual, very charismatic, but famously against corruption. So that's always something we, we are curious about. And justice for his part really explores the, not really the conspiracy theories, but was Janus Vallis the lone gun? That's also something that has remained a point of interest through the years. And that's something that justice really gets into in his book. And the last book that I'm going to chat about is coming out in late April, and so it's still a while, but it's worth noting. It's by Prince Michele, who is a very well-known political commentator and political scientist. He's written for the Sowetan for many years, and he's often on TV and radio talking about politics. And the genesis of this book is quite fascinating. It is an unauthorized biography of Herman Mashaba. Um, Prince, for years, um, was extremely dismissive as Mashaba, as a politician, and was very outspoken about that, um, until he read an um, American book about outsider politicians like Trump and uh, Zelensky, Emmanuel Macron in France. And he started to look at Mashaba in a different way and thought, well, maybe Mashaba can come from the outside and you know, become some kind of force in politics. So he went to Mashaba when he was still mayor and said, like to follow you around. I want to do a biography, um, but I want complete independence. And Mashaba gave him the access. So he spent more than a year, about two years, in Mashaba's office when he was the mayor at home. And it makes what absolutely fascinating fly on the wall stuff. You can hear the, you heard the phone calls Mashaba and Mr. Maimani were making when the fallout of the DA was happening. And Maimani's wife, for instance, was talking to Herman's wife and all sorts of stuff going on. When there's um, visits from the EFF, because remember they were part of the Joburg coalition. Uh, he's there to listen in on it. So you know when um, Malema comes along, he's there watching them interact. It's a very very interesting book. And Prince is an extremely entertaining writer. He's very irreverent. Um, he's quite jaundiced about politicians in general. So it's a lovely book to look out for. And now it's over to you, Sibongole. Thank you, Jill. My name is Oyinla Machiga. I'm the new publisher at Jonathan Ball. The first book from my desk this year was The Boer Invasion by John LeBan. This was a buy-in from our friends at Helium Co. in the UK, and we were interested in this book because we felt it gave a new perspective to a familiar history. In this book, John LeBan, who is an expert in Anglo-Zulu history and wars, retells the story of the Khrutrak and the, the Battle of Blood River. In this book, he gives the geopolitical context of the time and the environmental factors that led to the decisions that the leaders made in these battles. With the Battle of Blood River specifically, he tells the story from the context or the lens of the Zulu kingdom and people. The next book on from my desk is The Inheritors by Eve Furbanks. 
Eve is an American journalist and has lived in South Africa for more than 10 years now. On arrival in the early 2000s, she was fascinated by this country and, of course, our young democracy. But over the years, she learned that there is much that still troubles this country. Through her work, she came into contact with people who often would tell her stories and the complexities of building a nation when you've lived an entire history as a separate people. And it is a story of patriotism from her as a journalist and somebody that comes into the country and falls in love with it, but also from the perspective of people who fought for their people and fought for their countries from different lines. It also tells the story of Malaika, who is a born free, so to speak, but also finds herself struggling to make this rainbow nation work. This book has received many accolades and great reviews. One's worth noting is, for example, it was on the top 50 most influential nonfiction books of 2022 from the Washington Post and has recently been announced as a finalist in the Penn America Nonfiction Awards. The last book from my desk for this quarter is My Year of Not Getting Shit Faced by Pamela Power is not a stranger to writing. She is a fiction writer and a script writer, but this is her first nonfiction work. She proposed this book to us during lockdown when she was on a journey of self-discovery in terms of her relationship with alcohol and drinking. And through trying to work through some of that trouble and try to live a more sober life, she discovered that we don't all have to go to AA. Some of us must just practice moderation, but also we do need to examine what a drinking society looks like and what drinking culture does to our society. While working through her own issues, she also discovers some traumas that she experienced as a child due to her parents drinking and also deals with that trying to ensure that this generational problem does not get passed on to her kids. Although it deals with some serious matters like drinking and alcoholism and drinking culture, this book is written in a light, cheeky, self-deprecating way that I absolutely love. Um, and it's really fun to look at ourselves and where we've been with COVID, with drinking, with the drinking bans, and what a fun society South Africa can be, even as we face trouble. Those are my three titles for the first quarter. Thank you. Thanks so much, everyone, for your contributions today and for telling us a bit more about what's uh, coming up in the next few months. We will see you next time. To keep up with Jonathan Ball's latest book news, event updates, and new releases, you can visit jonathanball.co.za, but you can also follow them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok. Just look for Jonathan Ball Publishers. They also have an in-house podcast called PageCast, uh, which brings you the story behind the story. Second time around Just as wonderful With both feet on the ground It's that second time You hear your love song sung Makes you think perhaps that 
love like you is wasted on the young. Love's more comfortable the second time you fall. Like a friendly home. Second time you call, and who can say what led us to this miracle we found? There are those who bet that love comes. Once and yet, oh, I'm so glad we met the second time around. It's the second time around. A song with words by Sammy Khan and music by Jimmy Van Heusen. It was performed first by Bing Crosby with Henry Mancini conducting his orchestra. And we heard it performed there by our very own Gavin Minta here on Fine Music Radio. Thank you, Mzu. My name is Paige Nick, and you're tuned into Book Choice, Publisher's Choice, for an hour of the latest What to Read news brought to you by South Africa's leading publishing houses. Next up, we're joined by Viz Chetty from Penguin Random House. The Penguin publishing team always has a fantastic selection of fiction and non-fiction on the shelves for you to choose from, which is why I was so delighted to welcome Viz to the show. Viz is the sales manager at Penguin Random House, and he's going to be bringing us the best of Penguin's current fiction, non-fiction, and, of course, children's books. Good day, and thanks for having me back on the show, Paige. I really appreciate it, as always. So this month, I'm going to go through titles that would be coming out in the month of March. I've got some nonfiction. I've got some fiction. I try to mix it up so that uh, we can spread it out amongst all our listeners. The first book I want to talk about is a book called Flip Thinking by uh, Bertolt Gunster. He's a Dutch psychologist, and he's come up with an amazing concept called Flip Thinking the life-changing art of turning problems into opportunities. Now, he's been doing a training program and shows since 2001 on this subject. Over 750,000 people have attended what he calls the Omdenken show. And he's trained the likes of staff at Disney, Lego, Adidas, Colgate, Palmolive, and UPS, and many, many other big corporate companies as well. So what is the concept of flip thinking? It's basically looking at a problem and turning it into an opportunity. So looking at reframing problems in business and life and how you can make those into opportunities, so how you can turn them into something positive. If you like books like Atomic Habits, if you like books like Surrounded by Idiots, if you like psychology, self-help books, this is a really fascinating, interesting book to get into. This is available in March, and the book is called Flip Thinking by Bertolt Gunster. The next one I want to talk about is some fiction. This became a really, really quick in-house favorite with Penguin Random House, I have to say that. It is a debut novel by novelist Fran Littlewood, and the book is called The Amazing Grace Adams. If you read this book, you will not believe that it is actually a debut. She's so great at how she put the story together. The story is split up into three different timelines, uh, present day and 
the life of Grace Adams. So it's a hot day in London. She's in a car. It's her 16-year-old daughter's birthday. Her daughter wants nothing to do with her. She's sort of on the brink of a divorce with the husband, so they've been separated. And poor Grace Adams wants it all back. And she just gets out of her car, has a cake in one hand, and has a golf club in the other, and she's going across London to get her life back. So it's a middle-aged woman who's lost a lot of things in the last decade or so from where she was and is about her getting her life back, so putting it all back together. And it's a, it's heartwarming and it's heartbreaking at times, but it's also inspiring and positive for people who liked anything by writers like Jojo Moyes and and that sort of writer. This is, this is one you could look at. So The Amazing Grace Adams is our hot debut by Fran Littlewood, also coming in the month of March. The next one is probably one of my personal favorites for the year so far. I love Harlan Coben. I've I've said this on various shows that I've done and I, at the presentations that I do. He's one of my favorite commercial crime fiction authors. I think he's just fantastic. He cannot miss every book that he comes out with is just as entertaining, just as fun and easy to go through. And this book, I Will Find You by Harlan Coben is coming in March. It's a big one for us. It is a standalone novel, so it's not part of the other CDs that he's done. It is about a man who's up in prison for five years. He's been accused of killing his three-year-old son. He's been estranged from his wife, who's now moved on and remarried, and he doesn't really want to see anyone. He's in prison, and he gets a visit from his sister-in-law, and she shows him a picture. And in the picture, in the back and the background of this picture, is a little boy. He's about eight years old. And uh, he has a very specific birthmark. And that basically sets our main character into motion with the possibility that his son could actually be alive and who's actually set him up to be in this situation. So it's a really, really great a thriller, crime novel. You'd love it. If you haven't read Holland Coburn, you should start reading him. He's fantastic. Lots of TV series. He's got many, many series as well in previous books that he's done. So you'll never go wrong with him. So I Will Find You by Harlan Coben, available in March. It's coming in March. You'll probably see it everywhere. Um, and I hope you pick it up. Right. The next one is Milk the Beloved Country by Sishle Kumala. He's one of our local authors. He did some great books for us in the past. Rainbow Nation by Zulu Ars was a great one. So when he did that book in 2014, he had an idea for another book while researching that book. And it was all about names, names of places in towns in South Africa, little dorpies and how they got to be and how they got these names. But also he's using the names of these towns in a way where we can relook at our past. Right, the people that named them, colonialism and the original inhabitants of these towns. So it's a fascinating look into our history, our past, but through the eyes of the names of these little towns and dorpies in South Africa. It's an amazing, fun book, but it also makes you think a lot. Cicely does it really well. He's, this is what he's good at. I'm so glad that we have him back on the list this month, also coming in March. And the book is called Milk the Beloved Country. The next one is a cookbook I just wanted to quickly touch on by one of our favorites in-house again. Sarah Graham is back. In uh, 2019, we released a book with her called Supernatural. It was a fascinating cookbook. She's been a big pioneer of plant-based eating. If you like pro meat protein, that's fine too, but mainly plant-based eating. And she does it really well where she puts these good recipes together that are delicious. So that book did really well for us and we decided to follow on on that. So the new book is called Good and Simple by Sarah Graham. It's an extension of Supernatural, which is, again, mainly plant-based eating, but 
if you want to do a bit of flexitarian and put a bit of meat protein in there, not a problem at all. It's got a great recipes. It's coming in March. You'll probably see her online. If you follow her on Instagram, she's probably going to do a lot of posting about the new book. We're very excited about it. And it's a, it's a great gift idea as well. Right. Then the last one I have touched on in previous shows, but I just wanted to just quickly reiterate because it's been it's been out on the market since about Feb. And I think if you haven't read Jojo Moyers, you should pick up a copy of Someone Else's Shoes by Jojo Moyers. It's about two women who come from very different backgrounds, both on different life trajectories. And somehow through a pair of shoes, their lives intersect and flip around. So I think if you're into uh, something lighthearted and fun, just as Amazing Grace Adams was, Someone Else's Shoes is in stores right now. You can pick a copy up. It's, it's a great book by Jojo Moyers, one of her best ones to date. And that is all I have for you this week. Next month, we'll talk more books. And this is Viz Chetty from Penguin Random House. Thank you. A big thank you to Viz and the Penguin Random House team for all your beautiful titles that we so love to read. For more info on any of the titles Viz mentioned and their shelves of other books, you can visit penguinrandomhouse.co.za or follow them on social media. Just look for Penguin Random House South Africa. digested that lovely book review with Bobbles, Bangles and Beads, a popular song from the 1953 musical Kismet, credited to Robert Wright and George Forrest and it was performed by Virginia Osthazen here on Fine Music Radio. The best-selling version of the song was recorded by Peggy Lee. Do check out that version of Peggy Lee. It's a stunner. 
Thanks so much, Nzu. And if you've only just tuned in, dear listener and reader, you're listening to Book Choice, our special Publisher's Choice edition with me, your host, Paige Nick. And no worries, there are plenty more books still to come. So last but not least, to round up today's show full of books, our final segment comes straight from South Africa's biggest bookseller, Exclusive Books. We're joined by Batya Bricker. She's the General Manager, Books and Brands at Exclusive Books, and she's going to be sharing a feast of some of her favorite fiction and non-fiction titles that you'll find in your local Exclusive Books right now. I love the way Batya reads, and I can't wait to hear what she's got for us. Hi, I'm Batya Bricker, the GM of Books and Brand for Exclusive Books, and today I wanted to talk about lost worlds, other worlds, and the way books can take us there. Exclusive book selection of recommended titles for March captures this in some of the gems featured. The first is a book called 100 Saturdays, Stella Levy and the Search for a Lost World. It's a multiple award-winning book about Stella Levy, who had never before spoken in detail about her past. She meets Michael Frank, who's a journalist who comes to her Greenwich Village apartment one Saturday afternoon to ask her a question about the Judaria, the neighborhood on the Greek island of Rhodes, where she'd grown up in a Jewish community that had thrived there for half a millennium. Neither of them could know that this was the first of 100 Saturdays over the course of six years that they would spend in each other's company. During these meetings, Stella traveled back in time to conjure what it felt like to come of age in this luminous, legendary island, which the Greeks conquered in 1912 and then continued to administer even after the Germans seized control in September 1943. The following July, the Germans rounded up all 1,700-plus residents of the Judaria and sent them first by boat and then by train to Auschwitz, and 90% of them were murdered on arrival. 100 Saturdays is a portrait of one of the last survivors drawn at nearly the last possible moment, but it's also an account of a tender and transformative friendship between storyteller and listener. It's probing, it's courageous, candid and sly. Stella's kind of cheeky, actually, but she offers a magical modern-day window into what it was like to grow up in an extraordinary place and in an extraordinary time. And she constructs that life way after this place has really vanished. I love this book. Another woman forced to invent and reinvent her life and world is Noni Jabavu, the first black South African woman to publish books or a memoir on her life. At 13, Noni leaves South Africa to continue her schooling in England, returning only for short visits in the decades that followed. In 1977, she embarked on a biography of her late father, the illustrious politician, educationist and writer DDT Jabavu. But to do her research, she had to return to South Africa. So here is this traveling black woman of means, highly unusual, with a British passport, loved ones dotted across the globe, an international perspective, and she's rudely confronted by the indiscriminate cruelty and indignity of apartheid. This will give you a feel 
um, as to the tone of these pieces that she wrote for the Daily Dispatch that are now in this book. She writes, The atmospheres of apartheid are rather like a fog in England. One minute you're driving through, visibility nil, and with heart in mouth, and the next, it clears for a few yards, and you nervously breathe again. It's funny, it's intimate, and it really captures a time when being black was very difficult, certainly if you, if you did not fit the uh, paradigm of a black woman in South Africa. The words women leave behind and the worlds created in their wake is at the heart of David Ralph Vivier's book, Mirage. A century-old trunk has been dug up near the railway village of Sturfentine, deep in the heart of the Karoo. Inside is the lost journal of Victorian author Elizabeth Tennant and what appears to be the remains of a child. Michael, a university student recovering from a broken heart, is intrigued by what the journal describes. A scarlet curtain billowing above the desert, covering the entrance to another world. But things become even stranger when a line in the journal seems to connect Michael and his cosmologist mother written a hundred years before their time. So without much to go on, Michael goes on a journey. He travels to the old Karoo Hotel where Elizabeth wrote her novel, Mirage, and amid talk of omens in the sky, ancient prophecies and the end of the world, he tries to decipher the journal's secrets. As one mystery leads to the next, constellation-like patterns between his own life and Elizabeth's appear. Helped along by Renata, a self-proclaimed medium, and Umsarol, the local museum curator. You can smell the Karoo in these pages. In fact, the Karoo is such a presence in Mirage, it's almost a character itself. David's wish for the book is for readers to look at the world a little differently from what they did before reading the novel. And I think I do. And now for a book, not about lost worlds, but about fast disappearing ones. The Golden Mole, and Other Living Treasures by Catherine Rundell. It's a celebration of 22 species, each of which is either endangered or contains a subspecies that is endangered. Catherine Rundell is a scholar. She's a born enthusiast and an exquisite writer. The words are beautiful and the black and gold illustrations even more so. This was a book that was pipped actually for Christmas in Frankfurt but it didn't arrive in time all over the world. The artist didn't meet the deadline. Um, so we, we have it now in March. Some of Rundell's enthusiasms are surprising. She says things like, I did not believe in love at first sight until she was introduced to a pangolin at a wildlife project in Zimbabwe. Even when the book turns to more obviously lovable creatures, it's full of weird and wonderful information like Giraffes drop into existence a distance of five feet from the womb to the earth and within minutes can stand on their trembling catwalk model legs and suckle at their mother's four teeth, biting off a little wax cap that had formed in the preceding days to keep the milk from leaking out. Rundell's chapters are never more than eight pages long, but they are full of similarly vivid details about the creatures themselves, the stories we tell about them, 
and the way we have interacted with them and why they are now endangered. I wanted to read a little bit of the end. Although the book does not offer practical suggestions on how we can halt the seemingly inexorable march towards extinction, this book is a magnificent tribute to everything from bats and crows, hedgehogs to narwhals and wombats. This will give you a feel to her magnificent writing. She's writing about the hedgehog, and she starts like this. Pliny the Elder was not an easy man. He reprimanded his nephew, Pliny the Younger, for walking the streets instead of being carried, thereby wasting hours in which he could have been reading. Well, Pliny the Elder is certainly a man after my own heart. So if you're tired of walking and you want books that transport you beyond your own world, pop into an exclusive books for a glimpse into the weird, wonderful, magnificent and miraculous world of others. A huge thank you to Butter Bricker, General Manager of Books and Brands at Exclusive Books. If the book you seek does truly exist, all you need to do is ask at your local Exclusive Books or you can look online at exclusivebooks.co.za. And believe it or not, that just about wraps up this edition of Book Choice, our publisher's choice edition, here on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick, and our musical guru, Mzuma Keta. We'll be back with our regular Book Choice show, packed with reviews and author interviews, in two weeks' time. My thanks, as always, to the FMR team and all the publishers who've joined us to share their books with us. That's Pan Macmillan, Penguin Random House, Jonathan Ball Publishers, and, of course, Exclusive Books. I see the track we're playing out with is by James Grace, and that's reminded me of my very favorite author, whose name is Jim Grace. If you're a fan of incredible imaginative literary fiction, prose that sings, rich original ideas, and just magnificent writing, I can highly recommend this Booker-nominated author, Jim Grace. His latest novel, which is just out last year, is called Eden, but everything of his is phenomenal. I would read a shopping list if he'd written it. So with that recommendation, over to you, Mzu, to play us out. And we're playing out with a great classical guitar piece, Cavatina, performed by great talent, James Grace. Have a lovely one. Mm-hmm.